Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, I'm Brendan and I'm here with Mark and we're the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. And that's where you go to find all our information, Mark, isn't it? That's everything from all our past episodes, show notes and information. You can do a search there. It will also be where you can subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it automatically into your little podcasting app. It is the week ending July the 12th, 2018. And, Mark, I think we're going to do things a little bit differently this week because you want to jump into an email, a greeting from Malaysia, Mark. What's that about? As usual, Brendan, I'm, I'm always so excited by the you – know, I've called it this before. I think it's going to be the routine name, the tidal wave of correspondence we get. Um, it just makes me feel so much more connected to our profession around the world and particularly that part of our profession that has a special interest in unusual, exotic and avian pets. Um, And this week is no exception and I've picked one from the tidal wave, um, uh, a wonderful warm greeting um, from a colleague in Malaysia. And it goes, a warm hello to both Dr Brendan and Dr Mark. Um, First of all, I want to thank you for your fun and educational podcasts. That's being a bit generous. I really enjoy all of them and learn a lot. A brief intro. I am Yi Hein from Malaysia. G'day, Yi Hein. We're so glad that you're listening to us. He He currently works as a small animal vet, but he has an interest in exotics and unusual animals, um, particularly small mammals. And unfortunately, in his current job, he predominantly works with dogs and cats and doesn't get a lot of chance to exercise his interest in small mammals. We've had a podcast before, Brendan, about how to cultivate that part of the practice. I think Yehine might have to have a listen to that one. I would like to ask if your clinics accept graduated vets to visit and learn something like an externship program for students. Um, uh, uh, Ehan would love to have the opportunity to uh, have more exposure and learn from, uh, well, maybe people like us, Brendan, maybe not specifically us. Um, I don't know how good we are to learn from, really. Um, it's a, a wonderfully flattering um, uh, question, and, and 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 I wonder whether um, whether what what do you do at your practice, Brendan? Well, you learn from your your mistakes, don't you, Mark? So maybe he would learn a fair <laughs> bit from me. I don't know about you. Um, yeah, what I do in my practice? Well, I predominantly just have veterinary science students from Melbourne University um, visiting at our practice because we're a fairly small practice. We're not a mega practice like yours, Mark. Um, So it's a bit limited as far as potential overseas veterinarians or or students um, seeing some time with us to to look at some of the patients we see and and learn a little bit about exotic pet care. But um, we're always willing to explore the possibility of having a visitor from overseas. So you might want to mention a little bit about how the process works in your practice, Mark. But I think what you need to think about doing is perhaps just the first step that I would do would be um, my advice for anybody wanting to see practice in, in some exotic practices around the world, Mark, is to join the group. So join the unusual pet group within Australia, the UPAV group, join the Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinarians, join the Association of Reptilian and Amphibian Veterinarians, join the bird veterinarian um, groups and um, get to know who's who in which country you are interested in visiting and then when the time comes around that you want to spread your wings um, and head out to look at some of these practices then you'll know who's who in what particular country and and you may have even posted on the forums and they will also know you and it makes it 
a lot easier, doesn't it, Mark? To then know, hey, Mark is um, wanting to see practice in my in my at my practice, and I know him because of those stupid questions he posted on the website. So yeah, let's get him in, and we'll um, we'll see him in our practice. So that's the that's the first thing I'd suggest to you, Hannah, as far as getting to know who to see and and, and where to see practice, and also visit the websites, I suppose, of of the practices that you're interested in, and get a bit of a feel for how they work and, and whether it suits your personality, I suppose, um, is, is is my comment, Mark. What, what's your approach to these practitioners we're, who want to see practice? We're pretty lucky, I think, that um, that we do have, um, you know, the capacity to have a few students and um, um, and that the students and occasional graduate who do co- does come to visit, um, they... they uh, I think we we're talking off air, and they definitely, uh, in some respects, because we take their attendance very seriously, um, and we try to make it as productive for them as possible. It is that there is an effort involved, and so being able to organise that stuff in advance is really important. Um, but I also find it um, it's really mentally stimulating and keeps you challenged and up to speed. The questions that are asked and. Um, the presence of uh, minds that are, you know, closer to the cutting edge, the university life, the most recent forms of education. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're always keen to um, discuss these things with people and maybe negotiate a, a day or two where they can see how we th- do things. You realise now you'll be inundated with um, requests for people to see practice at Sugarloaf Animal Hospital, Mark. So I hope you're ready for that. Your web server might go down. Your web page might um, be be hammered um, with requests, Mark. We can only hope, Brendan. <laughs> Um, before we jump into the news, Mark, I just wanted to share with you, and I haven't mentioned this yet, um, one of the posts that was done on um, on behalf of our vet clinic on our Facebook page, Mark. Um, I don't know whether you've seen this because I know you've been away Twittering with the birds, um, taking photos of birds in, in Tasmania over the last week on a bit of a working holiday, photography holiday, Mark. Um, Belinda from our um, clinic saw a cockatiel at our practice recently and she took a little video of this cockatiel that speaks guinea pig, Mark. Um, It lives with some guinea pigs and this cockatiel is fantastic at mimicking guinea pigs. And I think what happened was the cockatiel sits in the kitchen um, lounge room area and whenever the owner opens up the refrigerator to get out vegetables for the guinea pigs, the guinea pigs get very excited and the cockatiel has learnt to mimic the sounds of the guinea pigs. So she posted a little video on our website about um, this particular bird, Mark, and it's gone viral. It's gone semi-viral, this little 27-second video of this cockatiel. And at the moment, I think we're sitting at 50,000 views, Mark, um, for this little video. That's awesome. it's amazing what um, what trivia people will do and um, they certainly haven't got anything better to do than look at a 27-second video of a, of a cockatiel speaking a guinea pig. But I will put a post of that on the show notes at vetgurus.com if anybody wants to add to the 50,000 views. Um, and I think face, Facebook reports some interesting things about um, videos and that, and it keeps sending me these little snippets. And one of the things it sent me, one of the facts it sent me was that it's a very popular video in England at the moment, Mark, and it is particularly popular with women between the ages of 25 and 34. So make that of what you will, Mark. Um, I don't know what that means, but what the significance of that is, but yeah, um, I just thought I'd share that with you because I know you like lots in looking at lots of Facebook videos, don't you, Mark? I've seen you doing it. Oh yeah, time. yes, I'm I'm a, a aficionado of the online video, whether it's YouTube or Facebook. Um, I'm always keen to uh, to see them, and I was much entertained by that. Um, I the the thing that um, how did it like? What was the circumstance where the the poor, um, 
poor cockatoo was sitting in a cage over a bunch of excited guinea pigs. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine Dr. Paulinda eliciting, you know, how did this get to this point? But good on her for getting a video and uh, all the ball power to her for going viral. Yes, well done, well done, Belinda. Although I, I must admit, I do get a, a, a tad cranky at Belinda for for running behind a little bit with her consultation, <laughs> and perhaps she was spending a little bit too much time with this um, particular bird and the owners gathering a bit more information than we needed to. Um, I think I, I have no idea what I haven't asked her yet what the bird was in the consultation for. I think it was just a bit of a health check. But, um, yeah, well done, Belinda. Um, shout out to you. And um, just make sure you're a little bit quicker with your consultations <laughs> next week or so. That would be good. Okay, Mark, I think it is time we look at some news stories. We need to say hello and thank you to our two main sponsors that we mentioned last week, Mark, so we'll do a shout-out to them a few times over the next six months probably that we have them as sponsors, and that is Specialised Animal Nutrition, which is Oxbow Australia, the Australian Australasian distributors of the Oxbow products for small mammals primarily, and also um, Chemical Essentials, which is owned by Andrew, who we know quite well, and they are the exclusive distributor of F10 cleaning products and other cleaning and disinfection products, not only in Australia, but I think in Singapore and an increasing number of countries. I think he's taking over the world with F10, disinfecting the world, isn't he, Mark? He's doing famously well. And I, I think we just, uh, in addition to our routine, shout out to uh, um, to the wonderful um, Jen and, and SAN and Andrew. I know Andrew's family's been through a little bit of a hard time this week with the death of one of their pets, and as we all know how that affects us all. Um, yeah, I just wanted to send out our, our thoughts. Um, uh, they're special people and uh, we don't want, well, we just feel for them when they're going through this time. It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I never touch wood. Our two doggies that we have, as our regular listeners know, I just have the two greyhounds at the moment. Um, hopefully they're with us for a fair few years yet. They're only into their middle age, but, yeah, I, I struggle every time one of our one of our pets die. Um, it never gets any easier, doesn't doesn't Mark? And I think it's tricky dealing with that. And uh, I was going to do a bit of a throw to one of our previous episodes here and say, look at um, episode whatever it was for euthanasia of unusual pets, um, which wasn't that long ago. So yeah, so yeah, hi to um, Andrew, and yeah, we're thinking about you, and we are thinking about your products too because you both have fantastic products, F10 and also Oxbow Australia. So that's our plug for our main sponsors and we would also like people to visit our website vetgurus.com and just have a look around have a poke around look at previous episodes you can do a search there for previous episodes you can also look at the other links we have we have our show notes um, for every show that links to all the news items as all, well as all the main topics as well there's, right? there's so. a huge amount of really really outstanding information in there Brendan and I know um, I might chockers chocker block of information <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> um, yeah actually it does have some good information there I must admit but first we're going to jump in news stories, although you were telling me about your day was a little bit busy, Mark. Do you want to elaborate on that? I did have a busy look. Brendan, I've been thinking about um, uh, vitamin deficiencies. We, we uh, When I first got involved in uh, working with uh, avian and unusual and exotic pets, um, I used to see a fair bit of uh, um, vitamin Problems, vitamin A deficiency, for example, and and probably over the last I don't know um, ten or fifteen years, with companies like San providing excellent nutrition for many of our animals, I don't haven't seen as much. In fact, I've gone several well probably the last decade where I really couldn't have said I'd, I'd diagnosed a, a vitamin A deficient bird in particular. But surprisingly enough, just in the last month or two, we've had a little spurt of, of problems with our um, our species that we uh, – we, I, I thought that 
um, that we always know there's nutritional problems in our um, uh, unusual and exotic pets. But um, I've just seen a spurt in vitamin A deficiency. We had a couple in today, Brendan, two in the one day. So I, I don't know whether we need to get that message out there about good nutrition for these pets uh, because it's such a preventable problem. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it kept me busy today making sure that we uh, checked the, um, the coanal papillae of all the birds. Maybe I've been missing some, Brendan. I doubt it. With your veterinary skills, Mark, I'm sure you don't miss many of those at all. It does remind me, though, of the bad old days when not many people had their dogs and cats on the complete, you know, formulated diets, and some of those diets were were very poor at that that stage. And I think around about when we first graduated, and we used to see in my practice anyway that I first went into a lot of dogs and cats were on those homemade diet marks, and I, I think you probably remember them where the breeder would and. We still occasionally see breeders who and send people home on these interesting diets that have 101 um, components to it, and I think that gives a chance of 101 mistakes to be made by the owner. And yeah, I certainly saw a lot of those, um, you know, calcium deficiencies, especially um, in those dogs and cats when they were told to feed, you know, how many grams of or spoonfuls of the calcium carbonate um, in the diet, and a bit of mince and a bit of this oil and that oil. Um, and thank goodness we don't see those sorts of um, deficiencies um, much these days. Although there have been those outbreaks of those commercial dogs' foods causing problems haven't there occasionally so I suppose there's the opposite there but yeah we we rarely see those sorts of common they were weren't they Mark those those nutritional deficiencies in dogs and cats kittens and puppies um probably that 20 or 30 years ago when we were first first out there so it's a good thing that we've got and, and I think my, my view of that with these breeders um or not you know these bad breeders there's a lot of excellent breeders out there of course um with any of the species is that I think the reason why some of them don't want to go down the track of feeding a, a complete diet that may be very well made and, and excellent nutrition is it's taking something away from their breeding that they can't say that I feed my special ingredient diet um, concoction that, that, that results in our award-winning snakes, birds, dogs, whatever. Um, do you think that's a reasonable assumption with some of these cases? I do. I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, we do see uh, even comments in some of the literature that uh, new owners get with their animal that if they don't follow the diet that's been prescribed, then that's going to be the cause of their animal getting cancer or um, having problems when, in fact, like you said, some of those diets are just abysmal and much more likely to cause bony problems or liver problems or whatever. Um, so I, I do think um, a lot of the commercial diets, while they're not perfect and there are times when there's issues, um, there's much more science that goes into those. They're much more consistent and, yeah, I have no trouble recommending those routinely. We love our, uh, um, you know, the pelleted foods for birds. They uh we clearly see just a whole range of health issues that evaporate once we get the birds onto a, a formulated diet, and uh, and yeah, um, and it's just easier. People, even if someone can formulate the you know a perfect diet, the perfect homemade diet, someone's got to commit you know several hours a day collecting fresh ingredients and mixing them and uh, cooking them, preparing them, whatever they need to do. Um, that might happen for a few days but crikey it's not going to happen forever so so yeah i think yes um, and consistency isn't it yeah not just that they get bored with it or that yeah that consistency of putting that number of ingredients together the correct way each time is 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 not high the chance of it happening yeah yeah so well there we go there's another topic we need to do as a main topic my diets of these animals and i must admit i'm increasingly and i may have mentioned it on a previous podcast that i'm seeing a 
an increasing number of not-quite-right ferrets um, for various um, symptoms that come in, uh, that once we put them on a decent diet, most of these issues evaporate. So, yes, diet is extremely important. So let's jump into the news, Mark, enough um, of us rabbiting on, although I must admit I had a pretty busy day as well with some surgical cases and... uh, and being one vet down in the clinic, um, so I was running around like a like a crazy vet, which I normally do, and that my poor staff was um, running left, right, and centre, and up and down. And I think they were glad when I headed out the door, um, where they could just relax and have a coffee and sit sit around and do nothing like they always do when I'm out at the building. Um, yes, so you know who you are. You're listening to this podcast now. <laughs> no, they're excellent, my staff. I um, couldn't get by without them. So let's jump into some news, Mark. I think you were going to take the first news story, and that was about rabbits. Well, there was a survey that uh, that um, requesting people to contribute to a survey uh, um, on, I think it actually got posted around the UPAV where, uh, Facebook page, asking people to comment on a, um, a, a rabbit cephalic appearance uh, rating survey. Um, I, I was, as, it's, as is always my way, Brandon, you know me very well, and, and of course I got to log in and um, try and complete the survey after it had completed, after it had finished, I was a bit late. Um, but I know you completed the survey, and uh, it's a very interesting topic which you know, by, by extension relates to uh, some of the things we see with dogs. Um, so the essence of the survey, as I understand it, and you should correct me having been the one who did the survey, but um, it was looking at skulls of various rabbits and trying to make an assessment about um, whether they were uh, brachycephalic or not, whether you would consider them brachycephalic. And this is a really important consideration because I think it... Uh, it's, uh, you know, obviously these cute dwarf rabbits we see quite regularly, um, they are highly likely, in my opinion, to be the, the um, main rabbits that uh, suffer from uh, congenital malocclusions and, uh, and be, um, be stuck with a painful and troublesome condition um, that may, in fact, shorten their life dramatically. So, so I think that um, such a survey would be very interesting. I expect this, the uh, survey results will be published widely, and I'll be very interested to see them, Brendan. Yes, the survey was exactly what you said, although I think it had pictures of the the animal's head, not just the skulls, as far as I, I remember. And, and the question was, do you think this particular rabbit in front of you is um, has the what, what cephalic rating would you give it? I think it said um, from one to five or something like that. Um, and do you think it is a brachycephalic um, breed or individual? And yes, I, I definitely think it is a concern in in rabbits when you consider the supposed number of species that we now have as pet rabbits. And yes, I worry with some of these rabbit breeds that have been bred exactly the same as what's happened with our other commonly domesticated species, especially the dogs and cats that we are running into trouble. Yes, they may look cute and that's why people are breeding them and that's why people unfortunately are buying them. But they're buying a very expensive rabbit that will be then visiting Dr. Mark or Dr. Brendan um, for dental treatments or other treatments for a very long time. So, Brendan, yes. Brendan, I've, got, um, I've got a quick question for you. Um, having yes. done the survey, um, what, rabbits are one of the – like when I look at a dog, I can clearly, you know, identify the brachycephalic individuals. In cats, much the same. The squashed-in face is really apparent. But – in rabbits, just the conformation of the face um, and the nature of the extended, you know, the incisors which push the front of the face out seem to conceal to me um, the, the um, proportion of individuals that will be brachycephalic. Is that, um, do you think that was something that came through in the, in the uh, survey, the images, um, the ratings, the 1 to 5 ratings included you know, indicated the fact that some of these might be hard to identify? Yeah, I think there's a couple of important points with it. And one was that people just do not generally think that that can occur in, in rabbits. Um, and those flat-faced ones like the um, like those um, 
uh, Little Dwarf, Netherland Dwarfs, uh, probably the classic there. Um, and there's another breed called the Lionhead as well that that um, people are breeding for. And they have that; they do have that shortened. Um, when you look at the profile compared with a, an, if if there is such a thing, I suppose a wild rabbit, not the um, rather than a, I was going to say a standard pet rabbit, which there really isn't such a thing, I suppose. Um, if you look at the profile of some of these um, short-faced rabbits, it is it is pretty dramatic um, compared with those wild species. Um, so, yeah, I think it's 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 it's, it's several things. It, it is, uh, and I, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, there are a couple of articles online about it, um, um, and I think the original sort of push to try and stop it was in the UK, as far as I remember, um, but I could be wrong. Um, and um, I'll find one of these little articles that we can um, link to. So, yes, um, I think it is a little bit trickier to – it's not as obvious as looking at the obvious flat-faced dogs. Um, some of them, like these lion-head rabbits, um, it is obvious when you sit back for a minute and, and look at it. But um, I think people just don't get into their uh, – need to get into our little brains that – this exists in other species apart from the obvious one that we're trying to sort of stamp out and that is dogs and it is a concern in rabbits and the other condition that I think we're, we're, we're seeing increasingly with them is the respiratory problems with them as well um, so not just the dental ones as well Mark I don't know whether you see many but those sinus ones and the chronic nasolacrimal duct issues as well um, that are not necessarily tied to the dental disease so, yes, it's something that – so I'm glad that that um, little survey was done. And, again, I just cannot for the life of me think whether it was – I think it was part of a research project or a master's degree or PhD or something or a paper that um, that they were getting some um, input from mainly veterinarians I want in or, or veterinary industry people. Um, so hopefully that will be published soon and it will be um, reported on our Vet Gurus podcast, I'm sure, won't it, Mark? We'll definitely be having a talk about that, just like I think you're going to talk about, well, this is a bit of a confusing one, Brendan, bees and elephants. Yeah, so this was a fascinating article, and it is about the elephants that are being hit and usually killed by trains in India. And uh, it was fortuitous that an Indian conservation scientist uh, has, was doing fieldwork studies between people and wildlife in India when he actually witnessed one of these accidents um, where some elephants um, were grazing or crossing um, through their, through their normal paths through the forest and then across where the train track um, was and it was hit or several of them were hit um, of the herd and um, five adults and two cars were killed and 10 elephants were injured and he happened to be witness that and it took more than 24 hours to clear the, the carnage and the dead animals there and then he started thinking about um, how we can try and prevent this but it, the statistics not just of how many elephants are killed in India and looking at this article train collisions in India have killed 266 elephants from 1987 to July 2017 um, um, but when you look at the the, the amount of um, uh, the India train system is extensive and it covers more than forty one thousand miles and they transport more than eight billion with a B passengers during um, the each year um, and that was two thousand sixteen seventeen um, so um, this report and he started thinking about what other things we can do to try and stop these elephants being mowed down by the trains um, and it's um, they've tried several different um, methods and the article talks about bees and it, it's really sort of hinting that one of the one of the creative solutions that um, people decided to try is to broadcast mark a buzz of swarming honeybees near where the um, elephants may be crossing um, the train tracks because they fear um, those insects and they're thinking that it does seem to help sometimes um, with it. But other interesting solutions that they've decided to try and um, use or they have been using is infrared sensors, um, which are near the, the areas where they travel across the tracks, Mark, and um, they go off and then some local person who um, is alerted via SMS, um, text message, 
people go and then try and um, dispatch people to chase the animals away from the tracks. It sounds pretty labour-intensive, that one. Um, the other obvious ones that they have done is um, trying to construct overpasses and underpasses and the obvious things to try and keep the tracks away from the elephants. But you can imagine with a system where they have, um, what was it, 44,000 um, um, kilometres and 8 billion people um, of tracks. It's a bit of a tricky one. So, it's um, yeah, it's a bit sad, um, but it was um, interesting, some of these solutions. So they're trying to find all these different ecological solutions to try and stop these elephants walking across the train tracks. Most of it happened at night, apparently, and one of the theories was that maybe they are blinded um, by the um, train's lights, um, but they're not quite sure whether that's a possible um, cause or not. Um, and one, one other thought was that they were getting stuck in the tracks, <laughs> um, but they don't think that's um, um, very likely with them. Yeah, so... There we go. That was um, my news story, Mark. Can bees I like help that save elephants well, from train strike? One of the things that I think is really important about that story, Brendan, was the fact that um, the, the two uh, there's two trends, I suppose, in India. Um, the first one is that the wild elephant population is increasing in regions, and that the trains are going faster. And so, um, this is a this is a problem that will more urgently need those um, elegant solutions. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that people are talking outside, you know, thinking outside the, the usual sort of range of things that could be done. Um, but, geez, it's, uh, uh, um, it's awful to think that um, uh, uh, an animal as precious and important as an elephant uh, could be wiped out by a speeding train so let's send all our encouragement that they um find more and more solutions as the uh likelihood of those interactions increase yes so and speaking of elephants you, go want you, go to first. Talk about, you wanted to talk about sucking snails no no is no. that about i just want to talk about snakes. you know what i'm like i always want to talk about <laughs> snakes um and so um uh, uh, shout out to our good friend doug who sent us um sent me this wonderful article um which talks about a uh, um a, a, a group of um snakes from south america um which is just a little bit of research recently has markedly increased the total number of um of these guys and uh and and interestingly enough I've, I've, this is a bit of an area of fascination for me taxonomy um i often see these articles where where there's a new number of species or a new we've discovered so many new species and so often those discoveries are just um you know a taxonomic rejigging of already known individuals um you know due to maybe some dna research but this is an actual situation where people have been out in the field grabbing snakes um and then actually literally discovered um a bunch of new species of this group of snakes and they're pretty cool in that um Unlike, uh, you know, most of the snakes that uh, we get to see at work, which uh, um, prey on um, small vertebrates, these are specialist mollusk eaters. So they, um, they actually latch on to the, the uh, um, specific snail and uh, a combat. I don't think they literally suck the soft part of the snail out. Um, they use... Uh, um, the arrangement of their jaws and teeth to drag the uh, soft-bodied snail out. Um, they're harmless snakes, of course. Um, they don't, you don't have to have too much venom to uh, to uh, make a bit of a dent in the snail. So they're harmless to people. Um, they're beautiful-looking animals too. They really they're rainforest species, obviously. Well, maybe that's not obvious, but that's where the snails live that they eat. Um, um, but in the typical way of you know, freshly discovered species that live in rainforests, their habitat is severely fragmented and um, declining in extent and quality. Um, and so uh, these snakes will, like, be, you know, the five new species that are discovered, um, they'll be immediately um, classified as threatened or endangered. Um, and there's real uh, 
there's a real possibility that there's other members of um, this group of snakes that are out there who will disappear before we even discover them. But the fact they feed on snails is uh, just, you know, speaks to the, uh, the, the diverse way that snakes have infiltrated the, the, and, and become predators of a wide range of species, Brendan. I find it fascinating. So are you planning to have some of these snails um, resident in your vegetable garden to keep the uh, these snakes to keep the snails away? Uh, I think me and Australia here will just depend on our blue-toned lizards crawling around in the garden. But it may be fascinating animals to watch, I'd imagine. Um, yes, they do. Um, they the, no, I've certainly never seen one of them. The pictures, are, they're quite um, striking-looking snakes, aren't they? And we will link to that in our show notes as well. And, yes, our blue-tongued lizards do love their snails, don't they? They're, they really enjoy them. It's a feast for a blue-tongued lizard, a, a nice juicy snail. But they don't suck them out, do they? They just crunch them all um, up and eat them completely. Well, I've got a, a good, fun... Feel good story, Mark, um, for our last news story, and that's about Poncho the police dog. Have you seen the video about Poncho the police dog? It's Mark? popped up on my news feed just recently, Brendan. Well, there you go, Poncho the police dog. And what Poncho do- does is he does a little um, performance where his um, police person, man, owner, falls down like he's had a heart attack and then Poncho runs in, nudges him, jumps on top of him as if he's performing CPR and the crowd love it. Everybody loves it. Um, and he uses it um, for training, for teaching um, at school visits and just talking about CPR to people. And yet we do know that Poncho does not actually perform CPR, but um, it's quite a fun little video to watch. And um, I think it's a good little visual thing for kids at schools to to, to um Make them pay attention, Mark. Show them a, a funny animal video or a story and um, they're more likely to pay attention and to listen to what you're saying rather than fall asleep. And that's one trick I use in all my lectures, if you've noticed, Mark. I always try and tell a joke, not that many of them are funny, um, or show a bit of a video to try and keep everybody awake. And it, and it works most of the time. The only, the only people that tends not to work on is um, our good friends Bob Donnelly and um, James Harris, um, who were always asleep in um, at conferences. So a big shout out to those two, Mark. Um, yes, takes a lot to wake them up, I think. So, okay, Mark. So our main topic this week. Um, I don't think our viewers or our listeners would guess what the main topic is based on our title, which is sweet, and it's a bit of a play on the condition that we see, or I certainly see fairly frequently in ferrets, Mark, and that's insulinoma. And, Mark, what is insulinoma in ferrets? Do you want to run through what the actual cause of it is? Well, it's a, it's a um, you know, just as... The name suggests a tumour uh, that's associated with the cells that produce insulin, the pancreatic islet beta cell tumours, um, and uh, being uh, neoplasms of the beta cells, um, they secrete high levels of insulin and the consequent um, failure to control normoglycemia and the excess levels of insulin depress the blood sugar levels um, so that the clinical signs of hypoglycemia are the hallmark of the disease. Um, we often see them develop a whole range of clinical signs, which are often non-specific, Brendan. They're often brought to us for, you know, um, for the potential for other diseases and, uh, um, and then, um, uh, then blood glucose is one of the tests we'll run. So what are the clinical signs that you see when, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, I was interested to hear that you say you see this quite commonly because we do too, but I'm fairly certain that we're seeing it at an increased clip. I don't know um, what your feelings are, but I think that the number of uh, ferrets affected by this uh, neoplasm is increasing. What's your read, Brendan? We do see a fair number of them. So whether it's increasing or not, I have to look back on the records. But anecdotally, I suppose, thinking of it as you are mentioning that, probably, Mark, and 
when we jump forward a little bit to the potential causes of it, maybe it fits in with some of the theories, and I'm sure you have a theory, Mark, <laughs> about what might be causing insulinoma in, in an increasing number of ferrets, Mark. So, yeah, getting back to the signs. Well, I think, as you hinted, sometimes there are no signs, Mark, um, with insulinoma, and, these, and that literally may be picked up on a general blood screen on a middle-aged ferret. Um, and I think, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself here again, Mark, in our list of things that we we're going to talk about with this condition is that one of the things I really stress um, for clients to have done with their ferrets is once they get to about three years of age, we start thinking about doing six monthly or, or once a year blood screens that definitely include the blood glucose level because sometimes we are picking up these insulinoma cases where the owner has not seen any clinical signs with the ferret. So we may see no signs. The other signs that, the, well, the obvious classic ones are lethargy with them, um, the collapsing ferret, the ataxic, the weak ferret, and the client might be saying, look, my ferret has episodes where it looks like it's been on the bottle, it's been a bit drunk. Um, what has it got into in in the um, in the um, um, cupboard where we keep all our drinks? There, um, hypersalivation is a common um, sign with it. So they're licking their lips um, and they're salivating, and um, I certainly have clients report that with their client. Um, very low blood glucose levels with some of these when they go into those crises um, with them they have the collapse and the seizures of them as well or um, the ferret that they can't wake up um, so they go and look at their ferret and um, they're poking and prodding their ferret and I've I don't know whether you've had this Mark but I've had the odd client who will um, come into me with with the ferret and say I thought my ferret was dead um, and it did we were able to rouse it from its slumber um, but it looked like it was dead and I really struggled to wake up the ferret um, and those poor doers I suppose or the NQR ferret the not quite right ferret mark and that gets um, onto one of the later comments that I'll be making with this in um, relating to nutrition with them as well um, so these ferrets that are losing weight they just don't seem to be in good condition mark and they're just not quite right i always put insulinoma on the list of my differential for those especially if we have a middle-aged or older ferret mark so you know what are the differentials mark i'm um, speaking of differentials what other sort of conditions do you think that you would pop into your head when you have a ferret that you think might have insulinoma well, the, the first thing I'd say about other differentials is that um, very frequently we find them with insulinoma. We find that um, uh, that not only will the ferret be affected by one disease, but sometimes multiple disease. They frequently have comorbidities, and one of the most common ones is insulinoma. So even though we're... Um, working through our diagnostic process, and sometimes it gets complicated. We do keep uh, a number of other um, uh, a number of other differential diagnoses on our list, even if we um, hit up the the uh, blood glucose and identify a level that makes us very suspicious. So, um, obviously, cardiac diseases, um, and uh, um, we we've seen that once again. I. I think our total number of ferrets is staying the same, but we're seeing an increasing number of ferrets that uh, um, have a variety of cardiac diseases and uh, um, and we're getting more and more of them ultrasounded to identify the specific nature of those um, uh, um, cardiac diseases, valvular or cardiomyopathies. We also see toxins. Um, we've had a couple of ferrets, particularly at that sort of seizure stage where um, where we think that they've ingested, um, uh, uh, we, well, we've diagnosed they've ingested uh, um, lead-containing um, items from around the house. And I think we, we talked about um, the potential different effects that some funguses can have, and we've definitely had a you know, ferret that was chewing on a, uh, some sort of mushroom from the yard and ended up having a series of um, seizures. So toxins are always on our list. Are there other differentials that you look for, Brendan? I think you've covered the main ones that I always um, think of, and, yeah, I, I'd agree with you totally in that we often have concurrent diseases in ferrets. So if you find one 
one condition in ferrets always look for others as well because it's a it's a bit of a ferrety thing isn't it mark that they often have more than one condition going on at a time but but i think they're probably the main ones i see and, and yeah the toxins um it, it's it's not it's unusual but it's um certainly not rare to see um toxicities with ferrets because it's so inquisitive animals and and we'd have a client who is not supervising their ferret um properly when they're out of the enclosure that they sleep in and then they're getting into all sorts of things in the laundry or or other items and and we see these sudden toxicities so i think it's important to to go back to basics there and just quiz the client on on the husbandry and the general care and um of their client um so what's your bottom line with the diagnosis of these how do you diagnose a mark and what's um what sort of blood glucose levels do you look at to say yep that one is an insulinoma case um without going any further or do you always go further with with the diagnostics or no and we generally are not i know that um and a lot of the literature, the final diagnosis is made by um, insulin assays, but I can't tell you that we routinely do those, Brendan. We're very heavily dependent on the blood glucose level, and um, and generally, I suppose we're looking at something um, less than uh, three to three point two millimoles per liter. Once we're under that, if we're down at um, in the twos, um, then we're uh, we're thinking that that level of blood glucose is highly likely to be responsible for those clinical signs that we're seeing. Um, and, and uh, geez, it never ceases to amaze me um, how, you know, low they can go. We've had, um, admittedly, they were seizuring, but ferrets sort of had blood glucose uh, at 1.1 and uh, they um, they they're still able to be um, treated and uh, stabilised. So um, I suppose the number we would generally be thinking about is about 3.2 millimoles per litre, less than that, and we're, we're just about calling it, Brendan. Well, guess what? Ditto. Um, I think we're um, exactly the same, Mark, and, yeah, we t- um, we we tie that in with that clinical history of the animal and, and when we're looking at the classic sort of age of these and and i think i I tend to see them um most commonly in those middle-aged ferrets and when i'm saying middle-aged i'm thinking of a ferret that's sort of two two to sort of five years of age markers um at the diagnosis is is sort of a general rule for the ones that i've been seeing mark so if we have that sort of history we had that blood glucose down towards that three mark um yeah certainly 3.2 3.3 millimoles then um which I'm trying to trying to think what um, what that is, Mark, in um, non SI units. Um, it's about. Have a little. Brendan, I can tell you just because I looked it up. Um, uh, Eighty to one hundred and twenty milligrams per deciliter. Um, okay. Yep, and de- and definitely, if it's less than then about sixty or seventy, then yeah, you're pretty well um, got a problem then, haven't you? Um, so yeah, so eighty, eighty, sixty to a hundred. Um, good. Um, so just yeah, just, so just to make that clear, eighty to one hundred and twenty is the uh, normal limits. Ah, okay. So well, less than sixty is you know our three absolute. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, so no, and I'm the same with you as far as the other um, sort of test in there. And yeah, traditionally insulin level is is looked at as far as the, uh, the blood levels there. Um, and yeah, I can't remember the last time I did an insulin level on a on a ferret. And and the other obvious methods of of trying to diagnose it is actually um, looking for the um, for the neoplasm there, and that side everything from ultrasound to advanced imaging um like cts or mri and also just getting in there and having a look whether it's laparoscopically mark or, or doing a um endoscopic examination brendan um, we've we've played with our we've, we're pretty lucky to have a 12 megahertz probe and i've played around with it but oh geez i, I must be bloody hopeless because um this it just proves to be a relatively um, futile exercise for me looking for um, these tumours in uh, ferrets with um, hypoglycemia. Um, I I um, just am not happy that I'm picking them up, and and oftentimes I think they are really really small tumours. So I suspect that 
um, at some of those uh, early stage, um, not huge clinical signs, but picked up on a blood test, sometimes those tumours might only be, you know, a couple of millimetres across or less, um, and they're still able to produce enough insulin that causes a problem. So we haven't sent any off for complex imaging, but I'm sure that would be useful. Um, but, um, but yeah, they're yes. bloody, no, I mean, I, bloody, I, bloody I, yeah, if, yeah, and if I have a client who want who's considering having ultrasonography done on their their little ferret, ferret I'll send them off to um, somebody that I um, I trust as far as being a very good at imaging and um, not me we sometimes <laughs> not me Mark <laughs> yes so treatment wise um, let's just sort of run through um, I know there's a whole lot of things we could talk about here but I think we should sort of um, well, I'll, I'll jump into the first little bit that Mark um, and, and there's three parts to it as far as I'm concerned one is the acute treatment and that's keeping the animal alive um, while we confirm that diagnosis and, and we stabilise the patient and then the second one is um, deciding whether or not we go with surgery um, and the third bit is um, our medical treatment there plus or minus other therapies so um, as far as keeping the animal alive um, I think we could talk all all day or all night um, about this, but uh, the key factor there is, like with any of these conditions, it, it, it's exactly that, isn't it, Mark? It, it's it's not trying to do every single um, test under the sun um, and have your patient die. Die. It's literally just stabilising the patient, um, which may be as simple as providing it with some. Um, um, glucose orally um, to stabilise it if it is in that um, moribund state um, doing your full bloods on that animal and looking at the other potential conditions that may be happening as we both mentioned about the possibility of other conditions happening concurrently in a ferret so if we find one illness we always look for others um, and once it is stable Mark what do you consider doing? Do you just pop them on medication or do you get in there and, and think about attacking that um, tumour or tumours in the pancreas? Well, it, as that decision is largely made by the client and um, as, uh, as you would be well aware, the, the surgery cases have um, a bit of literature associated with them that suggests they're likely to live um, uh, significantly longer than cases that are treated medically. Um, but there are, you add comorbidities to that formula and there are lots of clients who will elect to um, just treat their, their uh, insulinoma ferret um, medically. I suppose I reckon we would probably be about three to one. We're probably treating um, about... Um, uh, um, three ferrets medically to each one that we're considering doing um, surgery to see if we can uh, remove the nodule from the pancreas. And what's your approach with the surgical cases, Mark? Um, just just briefly, um, are you just trying to debulk that tumour or the macro tumours? I presume that you can see there. Um, and and how do you go about that? Exactly. That's um, uh, precisely we're trying to pretty much just locate the nodule, um, do a laparotomy, locate the nodule, um, and, uh, and and knock it out. And we'll often just literally um, use a biopsy punch to give us a nice circular punch through the pancreas, apply some pressure to control bleeding. Bleeding doesn't seem to be a huge hassle for us, um, and uh, and. That's as, about as complicated as we get. Um, maybe a little bit of um, uh, electrocautery if we think hemorrhage is a huge problem. We really want to handle the pancreas as little as possible um, and, uh, and try and limit. It's very painful and uh, potentially we can trigger off pancre uh, pancreatitis episodes. I know that um, there is in the literature the suggestion that um, uh, lobectomy or a partial pancreatectomy is um, associated with even better survival times. But to be honest, Brendan, I'm a bit gutless when it comes to doing that to a pancreas and we just punch out a little hole and try and get the nodules out. Yes, yes. Well, interestingly enough, the vast majority of the insulinoma cases that I see just go on the medical treatment and that may be a combination of me not... Um, 
promoting is the wrong word, but um, recommending um, surgical as the ideal. And I think the surgical approach to at least debulk the tumour is, when you look through that literature, if you just mentioned, Mark, is, the, is probably the gold standard for it. And there are various surgical techniques, and the one I would be using is that debulking method. I think there's some good little papers about using almost a cotton bud with um, with a bit of... Um, um, d- almost like a freezing method um, of removing them, which I haven't used, and, and yeah, those lobectomy techniques. But the vast majority of the cases that I see, they just end up on the medical treatment. Um, and I think because a reasonable number have other issues as well. So we, we decide just to try and um, tackle everything together without just jumping in in the surgery. And, and often there's a cost factor, obviously, as well with the client as well. Um, there, and I think the other big one that um, well, um, before we get on to um, medical um, options, there, Mark, and I'd be interested in seeing which medical method you use, as in what medication. Um, the other thing I really stress to clients is also the diet um, with these animals and making sure they're on a, a decent. We won't talk about what a good ferret diet is here at the moment, but um, and we should do that for another little podcast, Mark. Um, but just make sure they're on a good quality um, food that's um, um, helping with the um, glycemic um, sort of control of, of the um, of the animal there. Because if they're on a pretty crappy diet, I think that has a, a big part to pay, play with the ones that. Uh, poorly controlled when we when we commence a medical therapy mark so what medical therapy options do you um, reach for mark with these cases there are a few but um where we literally um hang our hat on good old um prednisone where i, I don't uh, i can't tell you that we've um looked at uh, the oral hyperglycemics, um, uh, there are the, the drugs like diox, di- I can't even pronounce it, diazoxide um, and the, uh, um, the uh, somatostatin analogues. Um, we haven't used any of those and uh, we've really just depended on um, where we're doing medical therapy, we depended on prednisolone as our um, uh, treatment of choice. And pleasingly, Brendan, um, uh, I'd... Um, while there are some side effects, um, the most uh, noticeable is often the altered pattern of hair regrowth, which will give the ferrets um, little blue patches under the skin or whatever. Um, there doesn't seem to be. You can use um, relatively significant doses of um, prednisolone for a fairly long time, and uh, ferrets are um, pretty resistant to the negative effects. So it's a um, it's been a fairly good drug for us to use and uh and and yeah like i said that's where we probably do most of our um our uh, medical work well guess what exactly the same here we um i think ferrets are they lap it up prednisolone don't they even even fairly high doses there and over time with these cases with the monitoring um I'm um, checking them within within several days and then several weeks of, of um, placing them on the medical therapy and then it's regular monitoring, a little bit like, I suppose, the, the diabetic patients that we're seeing with our dogs and cats. So we're routinely checking, getting those animals back in um, when they're... And we're often increasing, I find, um, down the track, the... Um, Pred um, that they need to be on um, to control the condition, but it's remarkable how little other side effects I think we see in in, in ferrets um, when they're on these fairly high doses of the prednisolone, and it works quite well. Um, and these animals um, stabilise um, quite well, and um, everybody's happy um, for several weeks, several months, and if we're lucky, um, longer than that, maybe a year or two with the ones that have been on the medical therapy, Mark. Um, I don't think we get too much longer than that with them, and and, um, I'd I'd have to look back on my records, Mark, but um, do you have, have have an idea what the longest... Length of time that they've sort of gone in, um, continued or, or been in remission? Well, long as one week. I know that um, the, there was um, a number of studies where the median survival time was about six months, but um, 
We've had a few that have been on the long end of that bell curve. We've had one that just got over two years before a comorbidity took him out. Um, and, uh, and so I think when you talk to people, uh, and as you said before, when you talk to people about the costs that are involved, um, if you can give them a couple of a ferret, a, a five-year-old ferret, a couple of extra years of life, on prednisolone, then most people are going to probably jump at the chance to go down that path to start with. Um, and uh, yeah, um, the um, I don't know. Uh, certainly, surgery is likely to help more and give longer um, median survival times. But um, there's nothing wrong with just keeping on the pred. I don't think, Brendan. Yes, and I think the other advantage there is the, the fact that we've got a very cheap medication as well, which um, works works with the client, doesn't it? And, yeah, the, the prognosis, as you mentioned, for these are that, that the surgical cases tend to tend to live longer um, when you look at all the studies there. And I think one of the key factors, one of the key things to remember with these is that they are um, rarely, if ever, cured, um, even with the surgery. Um, so it's a a um, lifelong condition unfortunately with them um, and it yeah certainly gets some of them in the end if if not one of the other ferrety diseases that gets them in the end there Mark so I think in the last couple of minutes that we've got Mark we should very briefly mention about the potential causes so what's your theories on the causes of insulinoma in ferrets why are you seeing so many and why are they increasing the number of cases you're seeing well I would love I would love to claim this is my theory, um, but this, well, can't be my theory, Brendan, because it's actually, like, founded in some significant research and uh, been published, so it takes it out of the range of things that I'm likely to be able to claim. Um, Finkler has published um, uh, a significant amount of information about the diet, um, and in particular um, the fact that... Uh, a lot of the diets uh, that have been used, particularly the um, the diets that uh, made up into pellets, often have disproportionately high amounts of carbohydrate in them. And then in addition, probably some of the people who might not even feed those diets uh, might supplement them with treats for their ferrets that have a relatively high level of carbohydrate in them. And that um, is probably the, the um, well, the theory is that... Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, the pancreatic beta cells um, that uh, that they're under the influence of those chronic high levels of a carbohydrate, the high metabolic rate that they approach, um, that those cells are in a susceptible state to become neoplastic. Um, and so diet may play an absolutely critical role, and I wish that was my theory, um, uh, I wish I could claim it as mine, but um, certainly that fits with the shift in when I first graduated, all the ferrets that we saw were rabbiting ferrets. Old um, cockies would bring in um, ferrets who would bite you multiple times all over the hands, um, and, uh, and, but because they were rabbiting ferrets, they ate carcasses and scraps, and we very, very rarely saw insulinoma in those guys, but as they've become pets and people feed them other things, I think that's probably where the rise in caseload has been coming from. Do you think there's any uh, potential logic to those parallels, Brendan? Absolutely. Um, I, th I think diet has a, has, a, um, has a definite part to play in it. And, and when you, logically, when you think about the natural diet of the ferret being a strict carnivore and then what some people feed them, especially they may be feeding them a, even a non-meat-based a non, um, um, protein there and, and, and maybe even a high sugar content um, diet, um, then you think, gee, are they eating sugar in the wild when they're catching animals? No, they aren't. Um, so I think there's a very big part to play in the diet there. And, um, yeah, there's some good information out there that strongly hints or, or confirms that that's the case. But I'm sure there'll be some more research that confirms that in, in greater detail. And um, maybe sometime in the future we can... Um, 
decrease the number of cases that we're seeing, Mark, and, and why you're seeing an increase in number of these ferrets with insulinoma is, is, a, is a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, genetics, I think, is the other the other thing that's often mentioned, that maybe the, the gene pool of some of these pet ferrets is... Um, is not great, and that there's a there's a tendency then to to have an increase in number of these um, insulinoma and other diseases in these these ferrets that um, aren't very rigorous or, or they don't have much vigor with their with their gene pool, Mark. Yes, <laughs> so <laughs> well, so thing, um, I was just trying to figure out where to start because some of the publications um, suggest there's a genetic component be, between the, you know, the countries, um, the martial ferrets in the US um, are quite likely to, you know, we've talked about a number of diseases that um, commonly occur in the US that we don't see at all and uh, the, the opposite, some diseases we see um, more commonly that don't occur in US ferrets. So there would appear to be a genetic component to it. But, um, but yeah, I don't know um, the... Uh, the relatively small uh, founder stock that gave rise to um, uh, the domestic ferret in each country that they're found in, um, I think uh, it could well be a, a major player in the diseases that we see. But I, in this particular instance, I think um, uh, given similar um, nutritional histories, we probably find that, um, that we're going to get similar outcomes um, I think that uh, diet is probably one of the major things that um, that triggers this condition in ferrets, whichever country they're in. Yes, I agree, Mark. Well, I think we have gone over time as usual, Mark. So, um, yeah, we could talk a lot more on insulinoma and maybe we will revisit it in the future, Mark. But apart from that, I think the outro guys jumped in, so... Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.